Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are shown how God wants every believer to come to a certainty and assurance and joy in their salvation. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, The Hope and Privilege of the Believer. through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the back corner there. Let's read one of the most incredible passages of scripture in all of the words of the living God, Romans 5 verses 1 through 11. And we are specifically going to study verses 9 and 10, but begin in verse 1 with me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. O sovereign and merciful God, God of all righteousness, all justice, all purity, all that is good. We love you and come into your presence to beg, O oh Lord, that you will give grace in this time. Father, I want to pray on behalf of those who have turned to rest in Christ, those who have heard the call and the message, and they've responded in faith and they are now in your kingdom. Father, I pray, give us strength and encouragement, O Lord, if we get these truths that you're teaching in these verses, we will never be the same. And just the joy will be so much greater. And so I ask for that, O God. But Lord, any in the room, any hearing my voice that has not yet turned, maybe they've not yet heard the message that they must be saved. Maybe they've just been assuming with the rest of the world that everybody's fine so long as I don't kill people. Or maybe some have heard, but they just keep refusing to turn to you, thinking that somehow it'll all work out. I beg, O oh God, that you continue to show them from your word by the conviction of your spirit that it's not going to be okay, that they must embrace Christ must come to you. So wherever we are spiritually, please God, give grace that what we need to see, we will see. 
Father, help me uh, to teach and preach. Father, just even the ability to speak is just completely in your hands. My tongue belongs to you. So if any benefit's going to come, I need your help. So please send your spirit both in the speaking, but then also, God, in the miracle of receiving your word rightly. I pray that all of us, O Lord, will hear and heed and believe and be changed. So please, O God, work for the glory of your name. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Let's pretend for a moment uh, that the burden and the aching that you feel for the name of Jesus to be worshiped and magnified to the ends of the earth, your desire for the message of the gospel, the message of salvation to go to the ends of the earth, to every people group. Let's pretend for a moment, the the burden became so great, you couldn't stay here any longer. And the Lord put an aching in your heart to reach a certain people group. Let's say you flew to South Korea, traveled to the north across a very dangerous border, You had the desire to go and find believers there and encourage them and help teach them the word so that they could go and share the gospel around them. You cross over over, under the cover of darkness, find a group of believers. You know, I'm told that some of the average size of a secret underground church there in North Korea might be four Christians who are there. So you find this little group of Christians You begin to have a conversation with the leader. This guy, he doesn't doesn't know all the Bible, doesn't have a copy of the scriptures himself. He's only heard the basic message of the gospel and then just a, a few sporadic passages here and there from the scripture. You're having a conversation with him and he says this to you. I am struggling in my faith. Because I've, I've turned to trust in Jesus. I believe that I was made right with God. I believe I was forgiven, but I, I keep sinning. No matter how hard I try, I just keep sinning. And I know God hates sin, so surely he's got to be disgusted and done with me. I believe that I was justified, but now I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm afraid that I'm going to come to the day of judgment and I'm going to be condemned. And one of the things that he starts to say along with this is he's losing courage. He's losing that zeal to share the gospel with his neighbors and things because when he is caught, and usually in North Korea, it's a when and not an if. When he is caught as a believer, he will be executed in gruesome ways. And he says, I'm afraid when I cross over that I will not come into the kingdom what would you say? How would you encourage this believer? Maybe even the Lord gave you one of those rare supernatural moments. And in that moment, you just, you knew that he had trusted in Christ, that he had been justified. The Holy Spirit was living inside of him. What would you say in that moment? Well, there are all kinds of places in the New Testament that you might bring up to him. You might Tell him about that place in John 10 where Jesus says that once you are in the Father's hand, no one can pluck you out. You might point him to Ephesians where we're told that once you are in Christ, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You might point him to John 14 where Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't true, I would not have told you. I will come again and I will bring you to myself. Lots of places in the New Testament 
But one of the greatest places in all of the Bible that you could point them is the passage we're looking at right here in Romans chapter 5. One of the clearest places in all of Scripture that speaks to give assurance and confidence to the believer that in the end, you will enter the kingdom if you are justified. Every justified Christian will be brought into the presence of God, into the kingdom of joy for all of eternity. It has been a reality for thousands of years that Christians can sometimes begin to doubt whether or not they're going to stay right with God once they've turned to Christ. We face that temptation sometimes of of thinking that God's going to get disgusted with me and just be like, I'm done with you. I've had enough of your sin. All kinds of temptations of doubting where we will be in the end. But Romans 5 preaches, heralds out a message of confidence, assurance, and certainty to the justified Christian. Now, let me, let me say just a couple things here, kind of from the very beginning. One is this. I, I suspect that some to find a little bit of what we're talking about here puzzling, that we're talking about how you can know with certainty that you have eternal life because maybe you kind of think along the lines of the rest of the world. You know, the word of God never changes, but what the masses believe changes every 15 minutes. The word of God never changes, but what people believe about God is constantly evolving, going all over the place to crazy places and such. We're at a place right now, culturally, where the masses, well, we're seeing that Many uh, just don't even believe in the existence of hell or that God has wrath at all. That's a growing belief that exists. It's incredibly ignorant. Um, C.S. Lewis said that if there were any doctrine of the Bible that he could change, it would be the wrath of God. But he says it's clear from scripture and clear from reason that this is reality. Now, I don't agree with C.S. Lewis in the part that we ought not like it because it is a part of God's glory his justice, his righteousness, that he's going to deal with evil. But we also see a growing belief culturally of those who maybe say, all right, there's a hell, but they kind of think there's only going to be about 10 people there. Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, Kim Jong-un, you name off a few serial killers, those, those will be the people in hell, but hell will largely be empty. At the end of the day, the only thing that I can say to you is you're going to have to figure out where you get your truth. At the end of the day, you're going to have to decide whether or not you think that the voices of culture and your, or your own thoughts carry more weight than the words of the living God who has spoken from heaven. Jesus said that the way is broad that leads to destruction and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. The word of God says there is one way to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from rebellion against God, and you have got to recognize you are in rebellion against God until you come to Christ. To turn from that rebellion, place yourself under the authority, to turn with the resolve, I am going to become a follower and obeyer of King Jesus, to place your faith, all your chips, all your hope, all your trust, not in yourself, that you're good enough, or any other excuse thrown out there, but only Christ and Christ alone. 
embracing him. This is your one way according to the word of God. If you're just going to make up whatever you want, then by all means, feel free. But you will answer to the living God who spoke the scriptures. So as we talk about this, this is the framework from which we're coming at. This word justified that we've mentioned a couple times, this has been one of the key words that the book of Romans has been building to show us to say that we need to be made right with God. Jesus accomplished what was necessary to be made right with God. By faith in Christ, we are made right with God. And the biblical word for that is justified. And what this passage has been saying, Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11, got a section here that's been listing out many of the benefits of being justified. When you are right with God, there's a world of good that comes. What are all of those things? Well, too many to count, but verses 1 through 11 have shared 10 of them with us. We've worked our way through six of them, getting uh, up through verse 8. Today, we're going to cover two more. Now, if you've got an outline there on the back of your bulletin, if you happen to grab one of those, we've got all 10 of the benefits this passage lists out. Um, we are ready today. We're going to go a little bit out of order only because two of them match together and there's some overlap and helpfulness there linking them together. So today we're looking at numbers seven and nine in that outline. And they're these, we are saved from the wrath of God and we have assurance of eternal life. So those will be the two points we cover. I'll just kind of try to show you where we are as we study this. So if you're taking notes, point number seven is we are saved from the wrath of God. Verse nine is where this truth is stated here, but it's based on what was said, the truth that was given there in verses six through eight. So the book of Romans has a linear argument that it has been building. We've been making a lot of reference to that. There's a large argument that's been being built to prove the truths of what we call the gospel, the main message of Christ. But even within that bigger argument, we see the occasional smaller argument. You know that passage in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah, where God says, come let us reason together. God actually does a lot of this in the Bible. Uh, studying logic will help you become a better student of the Bible um, learning what logical fallacies are will help you avoid some errors with scripture. There are a lot of times that God comes and he reasons with us. That, that's part of how we come to believe certain truths. That we need a friend to come along and, and reason with us, help us see some errors in our thinking and then help convince us of what the truth is. The Bible does this over and over again. And we have another one of these in verses six through 10. There's another little mini logical argument where God is reasoning with us. So see if you can track what it is here. So jumping back there to verse six, look at how we see this progression here. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let that word ring in your ears today. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's a conclusion. Here's a therefore after a couple um, introductory statements here. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, made right with God by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The justified Christian 
is going to be saved from the wrath of God. That's the main thing. Now, sometimes we get the gospel a little bit out of order. Sometimes we'll say things like, we only like cut to the very end and we'll say something like to a child, you need to believe in Jesus so you get to go to heaven. But actually there are a few steps before that. You need to be made right with God. And when you are right with God, there's a world of good and a world of blessing. One of those blessings, the very obvious things is, you will not be in the wrath of God in hell. You will be brought into the presence of God. But first comes the relationship, the cleansing of the sin, being made right with God, then leads to on the last day, we will be saved from the wrath that comes on the rest of the world. You've got the imagery of the Passover there, that the Israelites lived in the same land and the angel of death came and swept through the land, but everyone who had the blood applied to the doorpost, the wrath of God swept over and did not come to that home. The wrath of God is going to come to the earth, but all of those under the blood of Christ will be spared. One of the things we got to understand, though, in this is, is, is this, to help us kind of make a connection here. For you, justified Christian, you who are resting on Christ as your only grounds of salvation, past tense, there was a time that you were hostile to God and God was against you. Our sin is an act of war against God. Our sin is an act of rebellion against God. We're going to see later in chapter five that even in Adam being born into this world with a rebellious heart as part of our nature, we were born with a nature that was against God instead of submissive to God, a nature that wanted to create, uh, wanted to make ourselves Lord instead of him as Lord. That's hostility to the king. And God was against us. It's important that we see that because sometimes there's this idea that God is not against anyone. Sometimes in an effort, see, sometimes people think that they got to help God out a little bit. Sometimes people think that uh, when they explain the message of the Bible that we need, we need to make God just appear just a little bit more, uh, you know, what, what shall we say? Not quite so righteous, not quite so holy not quite so demanding and kind of give this impression that God's the big grandpa Santa Claus in the sky who just wants to grant all your wishes and blah, blah, blah. If you just be nice. Okay. And give this idea that everybody's biggest problem. See if you heard, heard the gospel or heard Christianity explained in this kind of way that our big problem is our hearts are against God, but man, here's God. He's over here. He's just crazy about you, man. God's all about you. God loves you, man. He's just ate up with you. He's all about you. And what we all need to do is just realize and accept his love. Have you ever heard Christianity explained in that way? Listen to me very carefully. I, I'm not trying to be nitpicky. I know sometimes maybe you could think Pastor Josh is pretty nitpicky on some of these things. All of these errors end up being a big deal in some way. Hear me very carefully. That is a false gospel. We have to be so careful that when we are explaining the message of God, that we're not making up a new version of it, that we're being faithful and true, okay? Our job is not to be original, okay? Our job is to be a broken record. Our job is to say what God has already said and not make up our own new religion. Listen to me very carefully. 
You justified Christian. There was a time in past you were hostile to God and God was hostile to you. And that is not mean and that is not cruel. That is just. I am glad that our military is hostile against the terrorists who are hostile towards us. That's a good thing. God was against you. If you are here and you have never turned to Christ, you're still hostile to him. You're still refusing him. I know, I know you may not like the word hostile, but I am going to tell you that's the word that the Bible uses to apply. That if you refuse to come under his rule, it is a rejection. It is a disregarding. It is insubordination. It is rebellion. It is hostility. He has the right of rule over you. He has given his law. To reject his law is to be at odds with him, to be against him. And understand this very carefully. You and God are not okay this morning if you're refusing him. His heart is against you. But all of that changes at the turning to Christ. The turning to Christ is the laying down of arms. It's the laying down of hostility to come under the submission. And when that happens, the reconciliation comes, which will be some of what we see next week. But, but part of what we have to see here is this. The justified Christian, at the moment of being made right with God, the moment of forgiveness, and by the way, that can happen even right now where you sit. If you have never turned to Christ, this is not one of those leave here and go try to be good. And maybe in 40 years, maybe you'll earn your way to be right with God. You can be made right with God where you sit right now at the moment of turning to Christ. In that moment, you are given the promise of being saved from the wrath of God. And Christian, understanding this brings about the greatest gratitude that is possible understanding sin and the horrors of what sin deserves. Like I know we could think it would be the opposite. Studying sin a lot can make, like some people might think, well, that'd just make you grumpy and gloomy and all judgy. Listen to me. The reality is studying sin and knowing ourselves, knowing the depravity of our own hearts, and then really thinking about what did my sin deserve? What are the horrors of God's wrath that I ought to get will actually lead to the greatest gratitude that is possible. In fact, you're never gonna come to the kind of joy that God wants you to come to until you come to a deep, deep, clear realization and understanding of just how wicked you were and, and still continue to struggle to be and what it is that we deserve. Understanding the depths of God's wrath leads us to understand the depths of his mercy. Understanding the depths of God's mercy leads to the deepest and greatest of gratitude and joy imaginable. Daily meditation on the gospel will transform your heart to be increasingly amazed that I get to be right with God and the knowledge of what we've been delivered out of. All right, now letter B, so kind of a second sub point underneath this. I want you to see this here as well. The point of verse nine 
is not only to say that you justified Christian are saved from the wrath of God. I need you to catch this as well. It is to show the certainty, the certainty of the fact that you are saved from the wrath of God. So does, it, does that make sense? Look at the way it's worded. Look at the way that the big argument has been built. We are interpreting what the Holy Spirit wants, wants the, the motives here, okay? We know why he says what he says and what he means for us to get from it. The passage, the book of Romans has already told us that in Christ we're saved from the wrath of God. Why is it brought up here? It's not only to say like for the first time, oh, I didn't know this before, I'm saved from the wrath of God. No, no, no. The point is to see the certainty with assurance to have confidence in the fact that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Now listen, once again, I just, I just got to keep giving this warning. If you are not a justified Christian, if you have never responded in this way, then don't sit there and tell yourself that it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. Only for those in Christ, connected with Christ in covenant, will it be okay. But for you who are in Christ, the soul resting on Christ. This passage is preaching to you so that your heart will sing with confidence that you have the certainty that on the last day, you will be brought into the kingdom. So here's how it makes that point. Verse nine begins with that much more than statement. That's actually um, a way of reasoning that the Bible employs several times, especially the New Testament. There's a way of arguing from the lesser to the greater. What it means is this, the Bible will oftentimes use reason with us to say this, well, look, if this thing right here is true, well, then definitely this thing right here is true. And here's, here's the reasoning here, going back to verses six through eight. If Jesus died for you, when you were an ungodly, hostile enemy of God, those are all Bible words. That's not Pastor Josh making up words to try to be dramatic. Those are all biblical words used to describe the soul apart from Christ. Ungodly, hostile heart, enemy of God. If Jesus died for you, when you were an ungodly, hostile enemy, well, now that you've been justified, which means declared righteous, legally righteous, before the eyes of God, you've been counted as righteous. Well, then now in the end, he's not going to condemn you. If God declared you not guilty, he's not going to come back in the end and then declare you guilty. Being justified means that God looks on you and says, even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to count the blood of my son as counting for you. He paid for your wrath by trusting in me and I count you now not guilty, acquitted. You are righteous. So Christian, you were an enemy of God. Now you're not. Now you're at peace. Have assurance that at the end, he's going to fulfill and going to finish what he started with you. If you are at peace with God, you don't get the wrath of God. Let's see if we can do an illustration here. Let's imagine you were living in one of those places in the world and this exists all over. Impoverished places where orphaned children live on the street and they dig through trash heaps 
in order to find scraps of food. Let's just imagine India. You're living in India. You're there as a missionary. You see these orphan children. You become burdened and you decide I'm going to adopt a whole bunch of them. Let's say you found one particular child and he had been imprisoned for stealing several other little crimes. That You set your love on him. You decided to adopt him. You paid the legal fees to get him out of prison and freed up there. You brought him into your home. Go through all the paperwork and in this act, you commit yourself to his good. And let's, let's be honest here for a second, okay? Adopting children off the street would be hard stuff. You're talking about a child that's never been disciplined, never been parented. There would be disrespect. There would be all kinds of chaos, the running around, the craziness, disobedience. There'd be all of this kind of stuff, but you endure through all of this in order to love this child. Kind of like whenever God saves a new Christian, okay? All the chaos, all the running around, God endures and God shows this love and God is making a project. But let's say that this little boy, five years down the road, after you've adopted him, you've been loving this boy for five years. You've been bringing all this progress into his life. One day, the boy lies to you. He gets caught, gets disciplined. But then he runs to his room, weeping, but weeping like uncontrollably, beyond what he should have for this discipline that you gave him. So you come into the room and you say, hey, bud, what's, what's going on? Why are you this upset? And he says, I'm afraid that you won't love me anymore and you're going to kick me out of the house because I lied to you. Now, what would you say to this little boy? It might be a lot of things. But one of them you might say is, son, you're my son. And if I chose to love you when you were coming off the streets, if I chose to love you whenever you were in prison and you were living in a lot of difficulty and I brought you into my home and I've loved you now, why would you think I would stop? I'm never gonna stop loving you now that you're mine. You're my son. The parent might continue. I don't love you because of how you act. I've chosen to set my love on you. I'm committed to your good. We're in this for, we're in this for the long haul. I'm not gonna stop. I'm not gonna quit. I'm committed to you for your good. You're my son. I love you. Now, the point of that argument is to bring some reason to show this little boy, hey, I'm not going to quit. But our illustration still falls just stupid short compared to the gospel. Because the reality is we don't have a situation on this earth where to free somebody out or to adopt them would, would, would mean that our lifeblood gets spilled on the ground. Part of the point that what this passage is showing is this. If Jesus died for you, what else could he show that would be the promise of I'm not going to stop? If Jesus died for you, then love is proven forever. Listen to me. Love has been accomplished forever. And that's what Romans 3 was all about. Jesus accomplished what was necessary. Romans 5 is all about now believe it and savor it and feel it and have confidence because of it. Exult in it. Romans 5 is God has proven his love to you. It is accomplished and proven by the death of Christ. And if you look at this 
much more statement, and you read through the rest of chapter 5, one of the things to pay attention to in passages is what gets repeated several times. This phrase is used four times in chapter 5. Look at them very quickly. Just kind of see the way that this is used. So verse 9, we just read that. But look at the very next verse, verse 10. The argument continues. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, see it there, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jump to verse 15. Now that's coming into the the next section we're going to take. And that section is comparing Adam and Christ and the two covenants, the two men of history who could represent you. Verse 15, look what it's saying here. But the free gift that's in Jesus is not like the transgression that's in Adam. For if by the transgression of the one through Adam, the many died much more. See that? Did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Look at verse 17. For by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one much more. There it is again. Through Jesus, grace and life will abound. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, well, then this is definitely true. So listen, Jesus died for you when you were unlovely. So don't go thinking that now that you are a son of God, a daughter of your heavenly father, who gave what was most precious to him to redeem you, don't think he's not gonna finish what he started. Don't think that anywhere along the lines there's going to come the day that God is done with you, that God gives up on you, or that God fails in what he has intended to do in your life. In Christ, you who are resting in Christ, you have been declared not guilty. He's not gonna come back at the end and reverse his declaration. You will not be condemned. You will not see the wrath of God. Now, the same kind of point, very similar, is continued in the next point. So we're jumping to point number nine here. We have assurance of eternal life. Look at verse 10 with me again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, justified Christian, God saved you when you were an enemy, and he saved you through Jesus' death. But now, both of those things are different, right? You're no longer an enemy. And Jesus is no longer dead. You are at peace and Jesus is alive. That's the much more. If he died for you and you're ungodly hostile enemy, you're not an ungodly hostile enemy any longer. You've been reconciled to God. You've been brought to peace with God and Jesus ain't dead anymore. He's alive. He will ensure that you will be kept until the day of final redemption. And to show this in even another way, as you look at the text, how many times in the book of Romans have we seen that your salvation is based on God and not on you? It's not based on your works. It's based on faith. And it's not based on what you could accomplish by keeping God's rules and God's laws. It was based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, you have another point going on here in this passage. Christian, your security in that you will be kept justified and kept right with God is also based on the work of God and not your fickle performance. 
thank God for that. If your security were based on your ability to keep yourself saved, heaven would be empty. And if you don't think so, you misunderstand human nature. The fact that heaven will be full. Revelation says of a multitude so large that no one can count from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation is owing to the work of God and not of us. Your assurance that in the end you will actually be saved is that God doesn't fail and that God accomplishes all of his purposes. Now to show that one more, one more way in this passage, in these first 11 verses, if you look through it again, like do the study, like read it like 20 times, you see these things. There are five passive verbs used in this section. Do you remember what a passive verb was? Word geeks, okay, I am one, I love it, okay. Passive verb is whenever you're not doing the action, something is done to you. Johnny hit his sister, okay. In that phrase, the hit is an active verb. Johnny did the hitting, okay, and Johnny needs to get taken behind the woodshed, okay? In another, another sentence, okay, Johnny got hit by his sister. In that, that's passive. It was done to Johnny. Listen to me and watch this throughout all of the Bible. Over and over again, salvation is described as the work of God and something done to us. And right now that is applied as part of our assurance. You can be confident that you will be kept because it is God who has done these things. You have been passively worked on by God. Verse one, having been justified. That's the English way of showing a passive verb there. In Greek, okay, for word geeks, okay, we don't do this, try to just feel smart, just telling you something that's in the text there. Greek language actually has a, a, a passive suffix added onto the end of a verb so that every time you see that suffix, you know this is a passive verb, okay? So past tense, passive verb. We were justified in the past. That was done to us. Verse two, we have obtained. Verse nine, having been justified. Verse 10, we were reconciled. Verse 11, we have received. And by the way, the word received, is there any more passive word than that? That might be like literally the most passive word that exists in the English language, to receive. And then there are even some future looking forward passiveness. We will be saved from the wrath of God. We have received the reconciliation. So let's bring this to some conclusion here. In at least four different ways, this passage has given you truths to show that if you are justified, there is nothing that is going to undo your justification. Justification is eternal and cannot be undone. Now, there's a whole lot more that needs to be said with this truth right here, and the Bible does. There's a whole lot more that the Bible will bring alongside this truth so that we understand it. But I do want you to take this truth, these sentences, and bolt it down in your mind. Turn the wrench so hard, this bolt never comes loose. Justification is eternal and cannot be undone. The justified Christian will be sanctified. Jesus is seeing to it. The justified Christian will be sanctified and will be brought home 
to glory. God finishes what he starts. I mean, just think about it. Let's use a little reason ourselves from the scripture. Would Jesus ever allow a single soul that he paid for with his blood to slip into hell? If the father gave what was most precious to him, the blood of his son, the blood of Jesus is infinitely precious to the father. If the father gave what was most precious to him, will he allow one justified Christian to be forgotten, to undo their own salvation? Or would it be possible for God to fail? And the Holy Spirit, he has the work of coming to the elect and bringing the gospel, ensuring that in their life they come to hear the gospel, ensuring that when they hear the gospel, they are awakened and brought to the new birth, and then ensuring that the justified Christian gets sanctified and comes to the end. It's his job. Can the Holy Spirit fail? Can God fail to do what he purposed and decreed to do? The answer, of course, is no. When God chooses to save you, you're getting saved. And when God chooses to keep you, you're getting kept. Now, that soul might not go easily. That soul might try to pull a Jonah. God has proven some things by using stubborn prophets. Even if he's got to turn you into fish puke, you're in the end going to do what God wants. <laughs> and by the way, there's this whole mystery, and it's difficult. I'll be the first to admit the mystery is great in that many passages talk about the human side of this, right? We're told that God clings to us, but then we're also told that we are to cling to him. There's a mystery of how does it all work together? I think the story of Jonah helps us with that. Did Jonah choose to go to Nineveh? Yeah, he did. After getting puked up on the land by a fish, God is the ultimate persuader. When God purposes and decrees, he will accomplish it. Friends, the issue is this. Jesus secured an anchor in heaven to the very throne room of God and tied the other end to your soul. The question is, will the anchor hold? Can God fail? Philippians 1, 6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Your salvation is bigger than you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, for it is, excuse me, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a human side. There's the human side. But here's the rest. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You got both things there, the mystery of human responsibility, but also God's sovereignty. The mystery is great, but understand this, friends, your salvation is bigger than you. History and the cosmos were not created to revolve around you, and they were also not created to depend on your fickle will. It was created to magnify the glories of Jesus Christ. And Jesus's glory is displayed by successfully bringing you to the shores of the kingdom of heaven. Every person bought by the blood of Christ will be kept by the power of God and be brought home into that kingdom or Jesus failed. Your high priest isn't going to fall asleep on the, on the job and your high priest is not going to forget you and not going to fail. God has fixed the certainty in himself. There, Christian, is your confidence. Isn't that a whole lot better than thinking it depends on me anyway? 
Like pride, human pride, always thinking higher of itself than it ought to, always wants to be like, it's up to me. If it were up to you, ain't nothing good happening. One of our hymns says, Christ the sure and steady anchor through the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance. See his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. How you respond to these truths is incredibly significant. Some of you believe these truths before you came in here this morning. This is a truth, a doctrine you have known for years. What I want to plead with you is see the glory of the doctrine. Revel, exult, let it renew your joy. Let it renew your zeal to see the glories of the certainty that we have in Christ. But others may have a disposition or maybe there are some things like from back when you were a kid, maybe you heard that kind of teaching that always left you wishy-washy, that how God feels about you is different from day to day. Or maybe just the enemy has introduced some of those dark, destructive thoughts of always trying to introduce, always trying to press this little button inside of you of thinking day to day that whether you obey or disobey is how God's favor, God's love rests on you. But this was a big light bulb moment in my life. See this. It is actually an insult to God to think of him as so fickle that how he responds and feels about you changes day to day. It's an insult to God to believe that the Father is not constant, that Jesus' blood is not sufficient, and that the Holy Spirit is unable. And your confidence is rooted in that security. But another way of hearing these truths is to hear them and think to yourself, sweet, so what preacher's saying is, I can do whatever I want. And in the end, I'm still saved. There's a lot that I'd want to do to you and say to you, but one thing I will say is hang on till chapter six. In chapter six, that very question is asked in verse one. Shall we just do whatever we want because of grace? Can we use grace as an excuse? And what I'll tell you is you'll be punched 22 times in the next 22 verses that come after that to show this is not what we have in Christ. Do not twist the word of God and God is not mocked. So what about you? How do you respond? And what about you who find all of this kind of puzzling? What about you who find it kind of weird that a church gets together and, and, and actually worries and thinks about and takes seriously eternity when you're thinking in your mind, huh, every country song I hear on the radio, every voice that's out there is constantly telling me, everybody's okay and I'll be fine. What about you? Listen to me very carefully. The Bible is crystal clear on these matters. Outside of Christ, outside of this thing that the Bible calls justification, you are without hope. This isn't something foggy. This isn't one of those places, you know, sometimes people throw that stuff out there of, well, you know, the Bible's so confusing, you can never really know anything. The people who say that are the people who don't want anything to be true. The Bible is crystal clear. You will stand in judgment before the living God. The living God is holy and hates sin. He hates your sin. 
And even though you may think your sin is so light that surely it's going to be okay, what the Bible explains is, is how the living God really thinks of sin. And yes, even your sin and that his presence and his kingdom will not allow even a single one into those gates. You must have complete cleansing by the blood of Christ, which you receive only by coming to him in the way God says and not the way you make up. Turn to Christ. Lay down your arms. Stop resisting. Yes, you will still fall in this life. This is not a call to perfection. It's the promise that we will have it one day. But it is the call that says, I will no longer be my own Lord and live as I please. I am coming under the subjection of King Jesus and I trust in him. Look to Christ like that and you will be justified. And in justification, you are given hope of the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for not only salvation, but then passages like this, which speak to joy and certainty, fixing our joy in your grace that will be revealed to us. I'm so thankful, O oh God, that our joy is not founded in fickle circumstances of this earth, but in you. Make us, O oh God, to be a people who lives in gratitude for this assurance. And any in the room, O oh God, that has not turned to Christ, please, God, bring it about today. I pray that they will respond to the gospel rightly. We love you, Lord, and pray these things through Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message on the certainty and assurance in our salvation. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at True dash vine dash baptist dot org.